Hi, this is Chad. Thanks so much for being part of this podcast that we're on this journey together towards product mastery. This is the place where we learn how to create products that customers love, and we're doing that together. And as always, at least for a while, and I've been mentioning that this episode is sponsored. This is how we make this possible by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. That's the RPM experience. This is a system I created that is really does the best job of helping product managers get on the same page with a body of knowledge, collaborating together better, that we don't usually interact a lot with each other, learning from each other, and helping the product organization move forward more quickly. Typically, it's a product VP that wants to be mentoring the product group, really help them improve their performance. And they reach out to me and I help out with that. If you're thinking about doing regular training, and I say regular training, you know, any kind of training for your product people, it really hardly ever moves the needle forward. You need something different, and that's what this is. The RPM experience is different. It will make a, a significant change in your group, and people will love being part of it. You can find out more about that at productmasterynow.com RPM and see how it can help you as well. Unfortunately, I'm dealing with some allergies and uh, hopefully my voice holds up here. We have a very important topic to discuss today, and that's Scrum. Now, a lot of us are familiar with this, right? It's frequently used for software projects as well as many other types of projects these days. Anything that would benefit from that ability to be agile, right, and how we're crafting the project. And while common, there are still many issues that organizations are encountering using Scrum. And to understand how to overcome them, you would want to hear from someone who's a real master, right? Someone who has put this to use in a lot of organizations, help people learn it. And we have someone like that with us. That's Fred Fowler. He is one of only 50 individuals in the U.S. who holds the distinction of being a professional scrum master level three, a very unique certification. And Fred has been developing software in Silicon Valley now for more than 35 years. He has a worldwide influence helping companies across the world and tackling a lot of the issues that we run into applying Scrum in organizations. And thankfully, he shared some of those issues as well in a book called Advanced Scrum Case Studies, Real-World Situations and How to Address Them. So we have a place to go get more details from what we don't get out of the discussion today. But I'm really looking forward to getting into some of his insights with us. As a reminder for you, if you want to find the written notes, the detailed summary that we put together of everything we discuss as well as a one-page action guide. This is a one-page PDF sharing the key insights that Fred will have for us. You can find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 399. Fred, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So you're in a very small community as being one of these elite people who help organizations with Scrum, right? It's a very rare certification that you only share with 50 people. Somewhere along the line, something attracted you becoming a scrum practitioner and build this experience. What was that? Oh my goodness. Well, that's really hard to pinpoint the actual moment when it happened because I've been developing software for forever. <laughs> and for a long time, I kind of made my living by working with people who didn't understand technology very well, but understood business. And by understanding what their needs were, not necessarily what they were asking for, but what they told me they needed, I was able to craft solutions that fit what the need was and, and do it in such a way using my expertise that it was quick and easy and it worked very well. So, and that's what Scrum is all about. Scrum is about identifying needs and then organizing people to fill those needs in a way that can be measured I can't emphasize enough how important measurement is in all of this. 
because unless you are measuring what's happening, you have no idea whether things are getting better or worse. So one of the most powerful aspects of the Scrum framework is its emphasis on being able to measure things. And most important, especially in the world of product development, measuring the value of the product that's being developed. That's crucial. If we're not developing something of value, or and ideally of more value than customers can get from other places, then we're probably not going to have a very successful product. Yeah. And unfortunately, in the world of software, you know, software practitioners don't really focus on the value of what they're doing. And in many situations, I go into companies and I ask them, so how are you measuring the value of the product? And they kind of give me a blank stare. Oh, we're measuring you know, how busy people are. We're measuring the number of lines of code that they write per day. We're measuring all kinds of things about the effort that they're putting in. But what's the point of putting in effort if you're not getting value out of that? And there are lots of horror stories. I mean, I participated with a very large company. You would instantly recognize the name if I mentioned it. And they spent half a billion dollars on a project which produced no value because they didn't keep track of whether they were actually producing value along the way or not. Doesn't that just hit you in the gut, right? When I hear that, it's like, man, if I was a part of that project, how moralizing would that be to say, wow, I just spent that part of my life on something that didn't produce anything. That's right. That's right. And it's not that they weren't trying to be careful. Oh, I mean, of course. They, they were, but they were measuring the wrong things. You know, that's the most important lesson that I drew. It's very important to measure the right stuff as you're going. We should explore that since you teed it up. What are some of the right things? Because as you're just talking through that, I'm thinking, you know, with my software background, we can measure the personal productivity of a software developer, right? And we can measure the productivity of a team and we can see if that's accelerated or decreasing. Yeah. But there's also the value produced to the customer, which is a lot of what you weaved in there, right? And it's why Scrum is important because it's really customer focused. Yeah. Do you have metrics that you really like to bring to teams and say, here's things that should be measured? Oh my goodness. There are all kinds of buzzwords out in the community about agile metrics, and, you know, people try to measure the productivity of individual d- developers. And you know what? It's impossible. That's a waste of time. And there's really only one metric that matters. Because most, almost all of the metrics that I've heard about, you know, even with fancy names, are just measurements of effort. And there's no point in measuring effort because you're not finding out whether that effort is producing anything of value. Right. So the only thing that makes any sense to measure is the value of the product. And now think about that. A product owner, which is what the Scrum world calls a project manager, or product manager, excuse me, that's a person who is actually a kind of investor. In the world of Scrum, there's a a wish list, a to-do list. It's called the product backlog, and that's a list of needs to be filled. And then the product owner's responsibility is to figure out which are the valuable ones to work on now. And then there's a negotiation between the product owner. I'll use the scrum phrase if you don't mind. There's a negotiation between the product owner and the developers, the people who are actually going to do the developing, to reach an agreement about what is going to be produced by the end of a fixed period of time, which is called a sprint. And the developers have to figure out whether it's possible to do that stuff. 
the product owner needs to figure out whether it's valuable to do that stuff. And specifically, you know, if you're if you've got ten people with high Silicon Valley salaries working on something, you better the heck ought to produce more value than it's costing you to produce it. Right. So the product owner is a kind of investor, investing the time of the people and the team to develop valuable results. And the product owner needs to be able to measure those results as you go to validate that you're actually producing more value than it's costing you. And that's what people don't understand. That's what people don't do, especially in the world of software development, because software is a very technically oriented product to develop. And so people get focused in on the technology. And, and people measure effort because it's easy to measure. If you want to tell whether somebody's putting in you know, 20 hours a day worth of effort, well, all you need is a clock to figure that out. But are they developing something that actually is worth more than the cost that you're putting into it? Let's dive into that value aspect a little bit, right? So you have the product owner who is acting in your center as the investor. They're the ones making the judgments about what should be built next. We have a customer that might be in the loop, and I'm curious about kind of where that might fit as well mm -hmm. to make this judgment. But at the end of this, we have to come up with, you know, something that creates more value to the customer than our expenses put into doing this sort of work. Yeah. How do we make that? How do we make those judgments? How, how do we make that focus happen? Well, that's the real trick. And in the world of Scrum, there's the focus on the product owner and kind of the technical aspects. But the product owner needs to use the tools of product management in order to put a gauge on the value. Okay. Now, how do you do that? Well, that means the customer needs to see what's going on as it's happening and give feedback. And in the Scrum framework, there's a particular event called the sprint review, which is designed to do that. During the sprint review, you look at the state of the product as it is now at the end of the sprint's work. And ideally, you have the people who want to buy it in the room so they can react to what's happened. And they give guidance to the product owner about, well, wow, that's important. Look at that. We didn't realize that. Now we, we, we know we need this. So the product owner needs to get feedback at that point. And that's built into the scrum cycle. You get the feedback at that point so that the product owner can make more informed decisions about what to prioritize next. So ideally, you need to have customers heavily involved. And by the way, if you have a single you know, main customer for something, like you're developing an airplane and you have an airline that wants to buy it, well, then it's relatively simple. You just you know, keep in touch with that, that, that customer. But if you've got a mass market product, then you need to use focus groups or you need to use you know, test markets. You need to use all of those tools to understand whether you're on the right track or not. Pretty sure the answer to this question I'm going to ask is it depends <laughs> on the project. But, you know, some combinations of things in there. We could have a group of customers literally in each sprint review, right, to give us feedback. And that might make sense for some project. We could have them in maybe if we're packaging up sprints into some kind of bigger deliverable. Some teams call them epics or something else involved in that. We could have customers that we have access to that might come in you know, during the sprint and give us feedback on things in progress. How do you like to see customers used and what might be some of the decision criteria for how they're part of the project? 
Well, but let's cut to the heart of them all. How do you measure a product's value? And in my opinion, there's only one way to measure the product's value, and that is sell it. You know, customers can say all they want to about how this is great and this is nice and all that, but the basically you measure value by having people put their money where their mouth is. And so in, in, the, in the world of lean, which is very similar, what you try to do is you try to deliver value in bite-sized pieces. They're called minimum viable products. And the whole idea is to get something like that into a customer's hands as soon as possible, as often as possible, and then find out what they really think about its value by asking them to pay for it. <laughs> now, actually, there, there are four ways to increase value, depending on what the product is. One way is to increase revenue. And it's pretty simple. If you create a, a new game for your smartphone and you sell it on you know, iTunes for $1.99 a piece, and you sell a million copies, well, you know what the value is, $1.99 million. That's pretty simple to calculate. And then you have to then say, okay, now how much did it cost me to make that? Well, if it cost me half a million and I got $1.99 million in revenue, boy, that was a great investment. Or, But if it cost you $3 million and you got $1.99 million out of it, that's not such a great investment. So... What you need to do is you need to figure out how to measure what the value is. Now, as I said, there are four ways uh, a product can be valuable. In other words, it can increase sales, which I just mentioned. It can decrease cost. If you're making a million widgets a year and you can save 50 cents on each one by basically improving it through through some process like that, then you know what the value of that is. A million times 50 cents, 500,000 bucks. Okay, simple. A little bit more complicated, you can increase value by decreasing risk. That's something that I did when I was a CIO. Basically, we had our headquarters at the end of a long fiber optic cable from a major city. And we ran the whole company out of that, including 21 locations around the United States. And then about once a year, some idiot with a backhoe would dig up that fiber cable and cut us off. Yep. And we did about a million a day. So it's easy to calculate the value of that. It's a million dollars per year. Oh, boy. Okay. So anyway, what I did was that justified the rather modest investment of putting all of our computers in a safe location, basically a big co-location facility, which is where, you know, Amazon and Google, they have all their computers. And for less than like $50,000, I saved a million a year. So you can uh, increase revenue, you can decrease cost, you can decrease risk. You can also improve opportunity. If you do something, if you're in a competitive bidding situation and on average you win one bid out of five and you know what the bids are, let's say they're million-dollar bids, and you can make a change that would let you win two bids out of five, all of a sudden... <laughs> You can put some numbers right. on how much, how valuable that is. And then that gives you guidance as to, well, how much money should you try to spend? You don't want to spend a million dollars to save a hundred thousand. You absolutely do want to spend a hundred thousand to save a million. Right. The only way to understand the value is to figure out what somebody will pay for it. That's the real trick, right? If you're getting the credit card from the person and you actually have their money, right? Or the PR, or however you collect it. 
Now you know what they're willing to pay. That's right. And up to that point, we don't know if they're actually committed or not. <laughs> right? That's right. And by the way, that's the product to solve no matter whether you're using Scrum or not. Yeah. You're always, whenever you're developing something new, you're always kind of making a guess as to what the future will bring. Yeah. And then measure that guess. Now, one of the beautiful things about Scrum was, or is, it does have that emphasis on the customer throughout the process, right? And we're, when it comes to software projects, right, we use this for all kinds of projects. But when it comes to software projects, there were, certainly was a time the dominant model was to collect all the requirements, disappear for 18 months, right? Come back with a system that likely does not actually respond to the requirements that we had in the beginning. That's right. And so we're trying to fix that problem. I'm curious about, I, I want to just go back to the, the customer involvement part of this, that we have a product owner who's applying product management skills. Have you seen issues with the product owner not properly representing the customer or on the opposite side, actually having the customer involved too much? How do you work through making sure the customer is rightly part of the process? Well, within the Scrum framework, by the way, the Scrum framework is about allocating responsibility to different people. The main idea behind Scrum is that people who are responsible for making decisions are people who are capable of making those decisions and following through. So a product owner needs to be a business person. Somebody understands the business, understands what the customer thinks is valuable, and can make rational decisions about how to address the customer's idea of what value is. Now, the developers need to be people who are capable of producing that value. And, you know, there's a lot of talk, a lot of focus in the Scrum world about what are called cross-functionality and self-organizational principles. And those are big, fancy words, but they basically boil down to a team is cross-functional if it has the capability of producing the product without getting any help from outside. That's very important in the world of Scrum. And by the way, let me tell you why. If a team of people cannot do everything in order to create the value that the product owner identifies, then they have an excuse for not producing. Oh, you want us to be able to do that? Oh, we don't have people to do that. Here, we'll do our part and they'll let somebody else finish it before the value is ready. Right. So, so, so anyway, if the team doesn't have the capability within its members to do the job, then they have a great way to point fingers at somebody else and not take exactly. responsibility. So one of the principles behind Scrum is people who get authority are the ones who are capable of carrying it out. And if they can't carry it out because they don't have the right mix of people or they don't have the skills, then they shouldn't be making decisions. Yeah, which is a very good tip for teams. To If we're having team problems, maybe that's something that we should look at. All right. The flip side, which is just as important, is, is this idea of self-management. The teams have to make their own decisions about how to get the thing created. They must. And by the way, people don't want to do that. Developers say, oh, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do my best. How many times have I heard that one? Now, <clears throat> if you say, tell me what you want me to do, that means if I'm doing the wrong thing, it's not my fault, it's your fault. Right. You told me the wrong thing to do. And I'm going to do my best. Well, you can't measure whether I'm doing my best or not. So basically I'm saying, okay, I'll give it a try. I don't guarantee anything. And by the way, if it's all wrong, it's your fault. So the teams have to make their own decisions so they can't point fingers at anybody else if they're doing the wrong thing. They have to own it and they have to correct it. 
Oh, that was wonderful, Fred. So it's a self-contained cross-functional team, yeah. meaning that we have all the response, all the capabilities on that team to execute. Yeah. The product owner, as we've talked about, is one of those key roles. Curious what you have seen in terms of a product manager being a separate role. Because I come across scrum teams where titles get used in very many different ways. Yeah. But I've come across teams where, oddly to my way of thinking, the product owner is an outwardly facing role that's engaged with the customer a lot. And the product manager is doing the work of helping the developers know what to do, which kind of seems backwards in my mind. I've come across configurations where the product owner really is the product manager and is guiding the mm -hmm. development team, as you said, doing that investment. And then there's you know, projects that just, the work gets too big for one person to kind of do both, to have that inward-facing job and outward-facing job. Can you just talk about that a little bit, where you've seen kind of a separate product manager fit in? The word manager is dangerous in the Scrum context because a manager is usually somebody who's held accountable for results. And okay. in the Scrum context, you need to have the development team be accountable for producing results. You know, developers love to have managers because that way they can avoid responsibility themselves. And ultimately, a manager is somebody who is a convenient and target for finger pointing. And by the way, <laughs> being a product manager in that context is a very difficult, thankless job because you don't have the ability to create the product yourself. You're relying on the developers to do that. But you're taking all the ownership, all the responsibility for that. Right. Now, a product manager has a lot, of, a big toolbox. And the toolbox, though, is all about figuring out what the market wants. Those tools are necessary. The product owner differs from the product manager in that the product owner uses those tools to figure out what the market wants, but then simply poses challenges for the development team, challenges for the development team to, to meet doesn't tell them what to do, just tells them, boy, this would be very valuable and that would be very valuable and the other thing would be very valuable. Mm. And then again, there's a negotiation. There's a particular Scrum event called the Sprint Planning Meeting where the product owner has the laundry list that says, these are the things that are really important and the ones at the top are the most valuable. And then the developers say, okay, wow, yeah, that's great, except, boy, that's going to be really hard. And the product owner says, well, I want everything done. And the developers say, well, that's crazy. We can't do it all. We can only do number one, number two, number three, and maybe number five on that list within the time frame we're talking about. And then the, there's back and forth. Okay, the product owner says, well, number five just doesn't really stand on its own. You really need number four. That if you do one, two, three, can you do like one, two, three, and six? Because number right. six is going to stand alone. And the developers say, okay, yeah, we can do that. Okay, fine. They shake hands. Now, everybody has agreed, and ultimately all the developers have agreed, with no one holding a gun to their head, that they will deliver those items. And the product owner has a very reasonable, valid expectations that at the end of the sprint, the product owner will see the product with those items added to it. Right. And the developers can't really say, well, that's not our fault if we didn't do it because, well, you said we would. It's our responsibility. And so, therefore, that gets them on the hook to manage themselves to get it done. These self-contained cross-functional teams are highly accountable. Exactly. And the product owner's role is simply to identify the value that can be produced 
and be accountable for it. You know how you measure whether a product owner is doing a good job or not? Oh, please tell us. Well, you can probably guess how you measure whether a product owner is being successful or not. The product owner is an investor. How do you measure success in an investor? You look at the return on the investment the person makes. In other words, you look at the value of the product compared to the cost of developing it. And that's the way to measure whether a product owner is doing a good job or not. Now, this is great information. So you've covered some really important aspects of the perspectives for Scrum for us. I really like the idea that the product owner, this is an easy part to remember, right? The product owner is an investor and is leveraging the resources of the development team to kind of negotiate how can we, in this amount of time, deliver the most value for our customer? And you've shared some other yeah. good things. There's really important topics in your book, Advanced Scrum Case Studies. And I know we could spend a lot of time, you know, moving from value into roadmaps. I just kind of want the high level view of where do you see roadmaps fitting in from a product management perspective, right? Because roadmaps are, are this, this rather strange thing that tends to handcuff us as product managers because they can be used to make commitments that no longer make sense. You know, how do you see a roadmap working with Scrum in a product management context? Well, I've dealt with many roadmap issues. And unfortunately, you know, because roadmaps tend to be made by, you know, high-level, C-level people and committees saying, oh, okay, it would be great if we did this. And let's time it out. Okay, this one should take about, you know, six weeks, and that one should take about three. So we'll basically make a whole calendar for the whole year about what we're going to have when. Right. And the problem with that is none of them are actually going to do that work. There's an old joke that says nothing is impossible if you don't have to do it yourself. Love that. Yeah. And then you also, in that situation, in effect, there are firm expectations about when things are going to be delivered, which may have nothing to do with what is actually possible. And then right. the pressure is always to try to meet those deadlines that are, frankly, quite arbitrary. And the famous, you know, famous last words is that some manager will say, I don't care how you do it, get it done. And that can lead to disaster because if people are put under pressure like that, they will make it look like they got it done. Right. But actually, they will not have gotten it done. They'll take a lot of shortcuts and kludges and all kinds of things to make it appear like they met the deadline. People will find out a way to meet the objective when the objective is not reasonable. Reminds me, I used to be a customer of Wells Fargo, and there was a time when they were trying to meet an objective of having a certain number of accounts, right, for everyone. That's so, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's even worse. We'll find a way. I'll give you a horror story if you want, but if you want to move on, that's fine. Let's hear the horror story. Okay. Well, there's a kind, there's a kind of a technical thing called a cascading style sheet. It's a document that's part of a website, which basically says how you want the website to look. You want this thing to be this color. You want that to be that font. That's all in a cascading style sheet. And I work for a company whose main product was website-based services. And everybody was complaining, all the customers complaining about how slow the website was. Well, it turned out that in order to meet deadlines, people have been pressured to get things done. And uh, the way a cascading style sheet works is that if there's an instruction at the top and then a, another instruction at the bottom that overrides the top, well, that, that works. You end up with the last instruction wins, if you will. 
Well, this company had a cascading style sheet that got bigger, and after a while, it was just impossible to figure out what was going on, so you just added stuff to the bottom all the time. So whatever was up above, if you wanted something to be different, you just added an instruction at the bottom. When I got there, this thing, you know, a big cascading style sheet has maybe two or 300 lines in it. That's a big one. This one had 40,000 lines. 40,000 lines, which means every time you clicked on something, the thing had to read through 40,000 lines of instructions to figure out. And it was all because people were forced to meet unreasonable deadlines, and they just took shortcuts, and the result was you had this monstrosity there. Okay, thank you for letting me tell that story. It was a good story. Yes, technical debt builds up very quickly and causes us problems if we don't deal with it, which is a whole nother topic. But we've already covered some good topics, and there's others addressed in your book that we'll tell people a bit more about. But first, as listeners know, we love a good innovation quote, and I asked you to bring one for us. What is that, and what does it mean to you? Okay, well, when I go into a corporation or a big company or organization and I talk to management, I say, I'm going to teach your people how to tell you no. What? You're going to do what? Okay, listen. If your people can't say no, then when they say yes, it doesn't mean anything. So you have to let people say no in order to understand when they really can say yes. So that's the quote. And I see that so many times. I mean, that 40,000-line test file, Cascade file, somebody should have said, no, we can't just keep adding. We have to take the time to reorganize this monstrosity. You know, there were instructions in that thing that had been repeated 12 different times. There were 12 different iterations of, this, of, of styling the same thing in there. Somebody should have said, no, we have to reorganize this and get it down to size. Right. But no one could say no. They just, all they could do was, you know, we have a deadline. We have to meet it. It's a great quote. I suspect it also immediately endears you with the developers that you're working with to help them to have a little bit of self-agency here to be able to say no when they need to. Yeah, they do. Because if you tell them and they just say, oh, yes, boss, yes, boss then (laughs) they don't really buy it. Excellent. Thank you for sharing the quote with us. How can people find out about your book, about the work that you do, resources you have available? Okay. Well, my book is on Amazon. You can look there. You can search for Fred Fowler and you'll see Fred Fowler's advanced scrum case studies. I also have a website, which really is the focus of all the things I do. It's called Silicon Valley Scrum, www.siliconvalleyscrum.com. And there you can buy that book plus other books I've written. There are also study materials. If you want to learn about the Scrum framework, you can do it. I also have a meetup that meets regularly. I put Scrum cases on the website. We then discuss in a meetup context. And that's really how I came up with the material for my advanced Scrum case studies book. And there's also, I'm working on a conference. We're going to be putting on a Scrum conference, the Silicon Valley Global Scrumit which will be a conference that has contributors from all over the world. Excellent. So www.siliconvalleyscrum.com. You can see all about it there. Okay. That's the best place to go to, it sounds like, for everything you have available, including information on the meetup. And also on LinkedIn, if you want to connect and chat, you can do that. 
anyway, I'd be very happy to talk to anybody who's interested in this stuff because I'm very interested in it myself. <laughs> and you know a lot about it and you've already trained a lot of people and been in a lot of companies and have good experience to share. So we appreciate the insights and it will make, I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes to make it easy for people to find. Okay. Fred, thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom with us. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the conversation. And for listeners, remember, if you do want a written summary of the everything we discussed, including a one-page takeaway to help you put into action some of the key topics that Fred shared with us, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 399. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.